A mother's love for her child is one of the strongest bonds there is. We all assume we would go to the ends of the earth to keep our kids happy, healthy, and safe. For many mothers, the protective instincts kick in when they're forced to defend their child against a predator or when they have to fight for the basics to survive. But some mothers' problems aren't quite the same as others. In the world of the rich and famous, image is everything, and successful children are the ultimate status symbol. And whether for the love of her children or the love of her own reputation, Lori Loughlin broke the rules to get what she wanted. And it ruined her life. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we're taking a look at Lori Loughlin and her involvement in the Varsity Blues scandal, the biggest college admissions bust the United States has ever seen. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Born in the summer of 1964 in Queens, New York, Lori's early beginnings bore no resemblance to the wealth and status she would one day acquire. She was the daughter of a foreman, Joseph Roy, and a stay-at-home mom, Laura Lee. But early on, there were flashes of what was to come. Lori showed some interest in acting as a kid. Once, while watching The Wizard of Oz, she thought it might be fun to be the actress playing Dorothy on the screen. The fleeting musings many children entertain while watching their favorite film. But it's not like she actively pursued the career. Then, her first acting gig came about by accident. 
When she was 11, one of her mom's friends invited Lori to tag along with her daughters to an interview at a modeling agency. She thought Lori might have fun. Lee wasn't exactly excited about the idea, but she agreed without too much convincing. Though to be honest, she assumed nothing would really come of it. But of course, things always happen when you're least expecting them. Lori made a great impression at the agency, and they had her sign a contract with them right then and there. Four years later, in 1980, 15-year-old Lori landed her first acting job on the daytime soap, The Edge of Night. So she moved across the country to Los Angeles to start her three-year stint on the show. When the show ended in 1984, Lori continued to book roles. She spent the next few years appearing in more than a dozen feature films and television shows until she landed the role that shot her to stardom. In 1988, 24-year-old Lori joined the cast of the ABC sitcom Full House. Initially, Lori was only supposed to be a guest star with a six-episode run, but she was an immediate hit with fans and had such chemistry with co-star John Stamos that the show's producers decided to make her a series regular. The role of Rebecca, Aunt Becky Donaldson, changed everything for her. Thanks to the success of Full House, Lori became a household name. People recognized her on the street. Adoring fans wanted her autograph. And it wasn't just her career that was thriving. A year into her time on the show, she married her first husband, investment banker Michael Burns. However, the marriage ended soon after the sitcom itself finished in 1995. Then, in 1997, around a year after her divorce was finalized, 33-year-old Lori eloped with 34-year-old fashion designer Massimo Giannulli. After they were married, Lori and Massimo had two daughters, Isabella and Olivia. With her primetime television career on pause, Lori threw herself into a new role, being the perfect mother. In a way, it involved just as much pressure as being a successful actress. Before her kids came along, she'd only been concerned with the public's approval of her. Now, as the girls grew up, Lori had a whole new audience she had to impress, the parents of her daughter's peers. The L.A. private school scene is a competitive one, and not just for students. For Lori, keeping up with the parents of her daughter's friends was a full-time job, it seemed like they were always trying to one-up each other, not just with their own personal achievements, but with their children's. At first, it was about who was on the best sports team or in the most advanced classes. But as Lori's daughters got to high school, one event on the horizon loomed larger than anything else, college admissions. All parents worry about their children's future, but in particularly affluent circles, college admissions had become a game, one that parents were obsessed with winning. And Lori was no different. She became just like the other parents in her circle, willing to do anything to get her kids into the right school. This isn't a phenomenon exclusive to LA. Across the country, helicopter parents are increasingly involved with their kids' college applications. More people are fighting for fewer open spots. However, in particularly wealthy circles,
people worry less about whether or not they'll get in anywhere and focus instead on getting into the right school. The one the parents feel they, and their children, are entitled to. It's not just that they want a good education for their kids, or that they want to find a college that's the right fit, they want the status symbol a prestigious school can provide. Before we continue with Lori's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to Yale social psychologist Michael W. Krauss, wealthy people usually believe that their status in life is deserved. While there may have been hard work involved to get where they are, they tend to overlook other factors that might have played a role, like opportunity, privilege, and sheer luck. For Lori to think that mere circumstance was responsible for her success and nothing more would likely threaten everything she believed about herself. She felt she had earned everything she had, therefore she was entitled to the very best, and so were her kids. Nothing else would do. Interestingly, neither Lori nor her husband had gone to college themselves, and both achieved incredible successes in their fields just the same. Still, having their daughters go was extra important to them, but it had to be a great school, and it wasn't just a goal, it was a necessity. Like the parents in Dr. Krause's research, Lori likely believed that if her children didn't achieve great success in their endeavors, then it would reflect badly on her. So Lori decided she wanted Bella and Olivia to go to the best school on offer, one that was highly selective, close to home, and had deep ties to Hollywood. She wanted them to go to USC. It made perfect sense. The University of Southern California was in high demand with the parents in Lori's social set. To secure her daughter's chances, she and her husband could have taken the more traditional and certainly dubious route and simply donated a large sum of money to the school. For plenty of universities, that's enough to get a student's application extra attention, often leading to acceptance. But it's never a 100% guarantee. And when you're talking about a popular and expensive school like USC, what's considered a small donation could easily be in the millions. That's a lot of money for something that's not a shoe-in. But there was another option. Lori had heard from some friends about a guy who had helped their kids get into college. They swore by him. His name was Rick Singer, and they said he could practically guarantee admission into any school a family wanted. Lori liked the sound of that, so she got his number and gave him a call. Rick Singer promoted himself as a college admissions counselor someone who had intimate knowledge of the process, endless contacts within the admissions world, and an innate ability to get his clients into their dream schools. But Singer wasn't just a guy who talked a good game. He followed through on his promises. The problem was that nothing he did was above board. For years, he'd been doctoring college applications for his clients. Sometimes that meant writing essays for students that greatly exaggerated or straight up fabricated their life stories. Other times it meant cheating on ACT and SAT tests. But his signature move was going to college coaches with bribes. 
The idea was that those coaches would use their sway during the admissions process to ensure the kids in question were accepted, even if those kids had never played the sport in their life. Singer was taking advantage of a system that was ripe for corruption. In the United States, college sports can be a lucrative business, with higher-profile disciplines like football and basketball bringing in vast amounts. However, some of the smaller programs struggle to stay afloat. Instead of letting the profits from football float all the college sports, schools often make less prestigious teams like tennis, water polo, and field hockey fend for themselves. Most of the time, this means these teams have to fundraise to stay operative. This added financial burden contributes to an already stressful and time-consuming job and can make some coaches resentful. So when a man like Singer reached out to offer a way to avoid fundraising, well, they were ready to listen. When Lori and Massimo first met with Singer in the summer of 2015 to discuss their daughter, Bella, he'd been at this scheme for years, and he was feeling good, invincible, like he could deliver on anything for the right price. That day, he pitched Lori and Massimo his method, explaining that there were three ways for kids to apply to college these days. First, they could apply through the front door and get in on merit alone, but that was becoming more and more difficult due to huge upticks in applications in recent years. Second, there was the back door, where parents donated large sums of money in hopes that would grease the wheels, but that was still no guarantee. Or third, there was Rick's side door. He explained how athletic departments had free reign to recruit whoever they wanted, and that those students were practically guaranteed admittance by the school. All it would take was a small donation and a doctored application to make it look like their daughter was an athlete. The fact that she wasn't one wouldn't matter because she wouldn't actually have to play the sport once she got into the school. Singer explained that once Bella got in, she just had to show up to some practices in the fall, then drop off the team for, quote, academic reasons by the end of the semester. And that would be that. For Lori and her husband, who'd already considered donating to USC, it sounded like a much better option. Instead of millions, they'd only have to pony up a couple hundred thousand for a sports team. All in all, it seemed like a great deal. And in all likelihood, they didn't think what they were doing was wrong. Morally gray, sure. But in their eyes, Singer's method was no different than donating money or gaining admission as part of a legacy family. All of them were tried and true options for the privileged, but this way was a sure thing. That was all Lori wanted. She and Massimo told Singer they were on board. They'd do whatever it took. Up next, Lori and her husband fall deeper into Singer's scheme. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? 
Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast and premieres Monday, May 3rd. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. In 2015, 51-year-old Lori Lachlan wanted to secure a bright future for her daughters. A child's college admittance was a crowning achievement amongst her wealthy social circle, and Lori felt the competitive pressure. She had worked hard to project the image of a woman who had it all, and her daughter's educational success at a top-tier school would complete the picture. So Lori and her husband, 52-year-old Massimo Giannulli, employed so-called college admissions counselor Rick Singer to help them achieve their dreams. Singer promised he could get their oldest daughter, Bella, into USC. They just had to grease the right wheels and massage some facts about Bella's athletic ability. Neither Lori nor her husband had any problem with that. It seems they gave no thought to how the plot might affect their daughter or the kid whose spot she would take at USC. They just wanted it done. This may be an example of something psychiatrist Robert Millman calls acquired situational narcissism. Unlike typical narcissism, which is evident throughout a person's life, this is a version that is triggered and induced in adulthood by celebrity, wealth, and fame. This can, and usually does, occur with people who may have never acted narcissistically before, but their privilege in life has altered their way of thinking to such a degree that they start to honestly believe they're superior to others and therefore untouchable. As a consequence, they lose their ability to empathize. Lori seemed to demonstrate all of these characteristics. Maybe earlier in life she would have thought about the consequences, but by this point, she was so swept up in her world that she believed her actions were justified. Situational narcissism might have stopped her from caring about who she might be harming in the process. And Singer took full advantage of that. His whole business model depended on parents who were blind to anything beyond their own desires. Now that he had Lori's okay to move forward, Singer decided the easiest route for Bella to enter USC was through the crew team. She could be the coxswain, the small team member who sat in the front and shouted commands at everyone else. But first, Singer had to pretend she was already an accomplished athlete. 
All Singer needed was a picture of Bella on a rowing machine so that he could add it to her profile and resume to really sell the whole thing. So Lori's husband dutifully went out and bought the necessary gear. And then Bella dressed the part, got on the machine, and posed for the photo. She had never rowed crew in her life. It's unclear how much Bella knew at this point. It seems likely that she suspected something was up when her parents asked her to go through this odd endeavor. But whether they told her the truth or explained their actions away with a flimsy excuse, we just don't know. After they sent the photo off, Lori and her husband waited. Singer occasionally updated them on how the process was going, finally telling them that Bella's application was being reviewed by his contact. In October of 2016, Bella was conditionally admitted to USC. That meant that her chances of being formally accepted in the spring were around 95%. Lori and Massimo were thrilled. As agreed, they sent off a $50,000 donation to Singer's contact in the USC Athletics Department. In the spring, the school made it official. When Bella's admittance was confirmed, the first thing Massimo did was forward an invoice to his financial advisor. He wrote in the email, good news, Bella's in at USC. Bad is I had to work the system. The invoice was made out to Singer's fake charity, Key Worldwide Foundation. It was a payment of $200,000, and where the money went after that isn't totally clear. Not that Lori and Massimo much cared. By now, they were celebrating. They may have been down a quarter of a million dollars, but it had bought them exactly what they wanted. Bella was excited to start college at a great school, and her parents couldn't wait to live vicariously through her. Everything was perfect. In the fall of 2017, Bella started classes at USC. Massimo focused on his fashion line, and 53-year-old Lori returned to work on the Netflix reboot of her old hit TV show, now called Fuller House. But it was soon time to think about their second daughter, who was only a year younger than Bella. When Singer reached out and asked if they wanted the same treatment for Olivia, there was no hesitation. Lori immediately emailed back with an enthusiastic yes. They wanted Olivia at USC too. According to psychology professor Robert Feldman, if someone already feels superior to other people, breaking the rules and getting away with it only enhances that feeling and reinforces their sense of entitlement. The fact that they'd gotten away with everything for Bella only made Lori and Massimo more willing to do it again with Olivia. And so Singer went through the same motions. He pitched Olivia to the USC crew team as a top-rated coxswain, even though she had zero interest or experience in the sport. Just like with Bella, he asked for transcripts, test scores, and a picture on the rowing machine. But even as they went to great lengths to game the system and secure their daughter's future, Lori and Massimo couldn't control one thing, Olivia's social media presence. 
By then, Olivia had a beauty channel on YouTube with over a million subscribers. She spent the vast majority of her videos talking about her life, dedicating a good portion of her content to complaining about school and how much she hated it. Of course, she never once mentioned anything about rowing crew. By this stage, Olivia was conditionally accepted to USC just as her sister had been the year before. Again, Lori and her husband donated $50,000, this time to USC's new athletic center. They agreed to pony up another $200,000 to Singer's so-called charity, Key Worldwide Foundation, once Olivia was formally accepted. As far as they were concerned, it was a done deal. But things were about to get messy. You see, Olivia's high school college counselor, Philip Patrone, had seen some of her YouTube videos, so he knew she wasn't academically oriented. When he heard that she was applying to USC, he was a little surprised. That she was applying as a rower was even more of a shock. Admittedly, he didn't know the ins and outs of every single student's life, but he felt pretty sure he would have known whether the younger Janouli girl was an elite athlete in her free time. Patrone had harbored some doubts about Bella's application the year before, but he'd never followed up on them. Now, he was determined to look into the fishy situation. To begin with, he wanted to find out if Olivia was on a rowing team outside of school, because she certainly wasn't on the team at Marymount High School. So, he started making some calls. By mid-December of 2017, Lori had heard that Patrone was asking questions. Spooked, she ran to Singer for advice. Even though Olivia was conditionally accepted, her high school counselor could still ruin everything. But Singer assured Lori that his people would handle the application and push it through. And they did. In March of 2018, Olivia was officially accepted to USC. Still, Patrone wouldn't stop, and it was really grating on Lori and her husband. They couldn't understand what his problem was. Their daughter was going to attend a top school. Surely it was a good thing for Marymount that another of their students was going to USC. That he continued making such a fuss felt like a personal attack against them and their kid. Interestingly, they weren't worried about getting caught. They were outraged that someone dared interfere with their schemes. Eventually, they felt compelled to act. So Massimo marched down to Marymount to speak to Patrone himself. It was a heated confrontation. Patrone insisted that he was never trying to get in the way of a student's education. He just wanted to confirm the facts that led to Olivia's acceptance. But even when confronted with his lies, Massimo refused to back down. He insisted that Bella and Olivia were both coxswains and said that Patrone better stop asking questions. In the end, Patrone let it go. He still had his reservations, but he sent the university an email saying that Massimo had confirmed his daughter was a rower, although Patrone took great pains to avoid saying that he had confirmed this himself. After all, he had been digging for months, and there was no record anywhere of Bella or Olivia ever being part of any crew team, either at their high school or anywhere else. 
Back in her Bel Air mansion, Lori let out a sigh of relief. Massimo told her everything was handled. In the fall, she'd have two daughters thriving at USC, and she'd be the perfect mom who had it all. Little did she know, the feds were closing in on Rick Singer, and every parent who had ever trusted him had gotten wrapped up in his fraudulent schemes was in danger. Up next, Singer leads the FBI right to Lori's doorstep. Now back to the story. By 2018, 53-year-old Lori Lachlan and her husband, 54-year-old Massimo Giannulli, had spent $500,000 on bribes to get their two daughters, Bella and Olivia, into USC. Both girls had been presented as athletes, even though neither had any intention of ever rowing crew. But none of that mattered to Lori, who assumed that she and Massimo had gotten away with it. But they were wrong. By now, the FBI was involved, because it wasn't just Lori and her husband who'd gotten into bed with corrupt college consultant Rick Singer. He was the mastermind behind the largest college admissions scandal ever. He'd helped pave the way for hundreds of kids to get accepted into schools they were underqualified for, either by fudging applications, fabricating test scores, or straight-up bribing college administrators. And the truth was about to come out. In 2018, one of Singer's clients had turned on him, giving the FBI exactly what they needed to close in. When they showed up on his doorstep that September, the self-proclaimed college admissions counselor had no choice but to cooperate. After all, Singer wasn't a man with strong principles. His loyalty was only to himself. Desperate to lessen the repercussions he faced, Rick said he would do whatever the feds wanted. So they handed him a script and told him to start calling his clients. It went like this. Singer was to pretend that the IRS was auditing his foundation and that he was touching base to make sure no one talked. But in the process of warning them, the FBI wanted him to get his clients on tape saying exactly what their payments had been for. One by one, he got his clients to admit what they had done, unaware that the call was being recorded and that they'd just signed their own arrest warrants. Massimo got the call from Singer on October 25, 2018. Then, a month later, Singer called Lori. He said it was just to confirm that they were all on the same page, but he was really doing his due diligence for the feds. They wanted it on record that both Lori and Massimo were in on the scheme. After that, the couple didn't hear anything from Singer for months, nor did they get any calls from the IRS, they likely forgot about the strange calls, figuring whatever issues there were had all blown over. But then, in early March 2019, Lori heard rumors that the feds had subpoenaed her daughter's records from Marymount. Lori assumed it was Olivia's high school counselor making problems again. She called Singer to ask him if he knew what was going on, but he pretended he didn't have a clue. 
Of course, Lori had no idea that the FBI was listening in on her call, nor did she know what was coming next. Just eight days later, the raids began. On March 12, 2019, hundreds of FBI agents across the country began making arrests. They hit Silicon Valley, Los Angeles, Miami, Houston, Manhattan, and many more, all hotspots for the wealthy. Within a matter of hours, they had at least 50 people in custody, held on a range of charges, from conspiracy to commit mail fraud to racketeering. In L.A., where Singer had a strong contingency of clients, those arrested were led into cells at the United States Marshals Service. Among the women were actress Felicity Huffman and marketing CEO Jane Buckingham. There were just as many influential people on the men's side. One of them was, of course, Massimo Giannulli. He recognized some of the other guys in his holding cell, like Beverly Hills developer Robert Flaxman. At first, they had no idea why they were all gathered there, until eventually one man put it together. He turned to his cellmates and asked them, do you all know Rick Singer? A collective swear went through the cell as it dawned on everyone. They'd been caught. At the time of the raids, 53-year-old Lori was in Vancouver, Canada, shooting her latest film, completely unaware that her husband had just been arrested. That all changed when the authorities ordered her to fly home immediately. We don't know for certain what Lori's thoughts were when she heard the news, but it's likely she was shocked and maybe scared. She thought she was above reproach. Or maybe she was in denial. It's possible that when she was told what happened, she was convinced that this too could all be washed away. Perhaps she was sure she was innocent, that she only did what any loving parent would. Whatever her internal dialogue was in Vancouver, by the time she returned to LA, she decided her best bet was to play innocent, to go about her life as if she'd done nothing wrong. When she went into the courtroom in April 2019, Lori stuck to her plan. Even as she faced a judge and heard her charges read aloud, conspiracy to commit mail and wire fraud, she pleaded not guilty. According to researchers at Stanford, London Business School, and Northwestern University, power can literally go to one's head, causing individuals to think they have more personal control over outcomes than they really do. In Lori's case, her power may have led her to believe that she was still in control over a situation that was completely out of her hands. Even if she couldn't accept it, she was now at the mercy of the courts. Still, she held on to the belief that everything would work out in her favor. But the truth was, Lori's life was spiraling out of control. Within hours of news of the scandal breaking, her carefully cultivated image was dragged through the mud in the papers and online. After she'd used her success to her advantage, it was used against her. Suddenly, memes about her Full House character, Aunt Becky, were trending around the world as people took special delight in Lori's downfall. 
Part of it was that everyone loves a scandal, particularly the schadenfreude of wealthy people who get their comeuppance. But average Americans seem to take particular offense to this crime because it hits so close to home. According to authors Melissa Korn and Jennifer Levitz, who penned Unacceptable, a book about this case, it was confirmation that the university admission system is not fair. People loathed the fact that already privileged individuals thought they could game a system that heavily favored them in the first place. It didn't help that Lori refused to apologize for her actions. She showed no remorse and no regret. Another high-profile actress embroiled in the scandal, actress Felicity Huffman, chose the opposite route. She admitted to her wrongdoings and appeared contrite and apologetic. The public didn't give her a pass, but she avoided the worst of their ire. That was saved for Lori. In all fairness, she and her husband were some of the worst offenders. Meanwhile, Felicity Huffman paid $15,000 to doctor an ACT test for her daughter, undoubtedly gross and unfair. But when stacked alongside Lori and Massimo, who paid half a million to steal places at USC for their kids, well, one definitely feels worse. Still, Lori and Massimo were offered a deal. They could plead guilty in exchange for a two-year sentence. But two years seemed too harsh to them, especially compared to the other parents who had already agreed to the deal. Huffman, for example, was offered a four-month sentence. Then again, the outright bribery made their charges much worse. Despite their objections, the prosecutors refused to budge. So Lori and Massimo said no to the deal. But the feds weren't done yet. A month later, a second round of indictments were handed down to those parents who had pleaded not guilty. Now, conspiracy to commit fraud and money laundering were added to the docket. That's a lot of fancy terminology, but essentially the charge was that Lori, her husband, and 14 other parents had funneled bribes through Singer's fake charity. If they were found guilty, they faced prison terms of up to 20 years. Suddenly, the plea deal they'd turned down was looking pretty good. Still, Lori couldn't be deterred from her upbeat attitude. And it wasn't just a smile and a hope for the best mantra. Whenever she showed up at the courthouse, she'd sign autographs and wave to fans before she went inside. Critics said it seemed like she wasn't taking the whole thing seriously, and this made the public despise her even more. From her behavior, it looked like she believed she'd get off scot-free. In response, there was intense clamoring online from people hoping for her to get the harshest sentence possible. Finally, Lori came to the realization that she wasn't going to walk away from this unscathed like she'd perhaps hoped. So in May of 2020, Lori agreed to plead guilty to the charges. In the end, she was sentenced to only two months in prison, with two years of supervised release and 100 hours of community service. Her husband, Massimo Giannulli, received five months in prison, and together they were fined $400,000. Lori served her time from October to December of 2020. 
her short sentence spawned national outrage. Many saw it as yet another wealthy white person breaking the law and getting nothing more than a slap on the wrist. Lori Lachlan spent just two months behind bars for cheating the system in a much bigger, more purposeful way. But at the end of the day, it wasn't the legal ramifications that affected Lori the most. It was the public shame. Netflix fired her from Fuller House, as did the Hallmark Channel, where she had an ongoing contract. It seemed no one was or is inclined to hire her. It just wouldn't be a good look. The irony is that Lori got into this ordeal in the first place because of her preoccupation with image. She wanted so desperately for her daughters to go to a good school because it would reflect well on her. She wanted to be the woman who had it all, and her desperation ruined her. Still, even though she got off with little more than a scolding, what she couldn't escape was public derision. Lori wasn't the only parent who lost her career because of this scandal. Others were fired from their companies, kicked off of boards, and banned from their professional associations. But Lori bore the brunt of the public scorn because people across the country knew her, and her refusal to admit blame made her a prime punching bag. No one felt bad for piling on the celebrity who wouldn't even acknowledge she'd done something wrong. She succumbed to all the worst trappings of wealth, entitlement, superiority, and the pervasive belief that rules didn't apply to her. And in a way, she was right. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Lori Lachlan, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admissions Scandal by Melissa Korn and Jennifer Levitz, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Joanna Philbin and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson.